right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the drop at DFT. You are in the midst of our opening the umbrella season, a companion to season three of the Umbrella Academy. Today, I am joined by editor Amy K. Bostrom. Thank you so much for making the time, Amy. Thank you. I'm very excited to chat all things season three. Me too, because I will share that my goddaughter is a ginormous fan and had not let up on me once she found out that we worked on the show. <laughs> and so we had to stay up until it dropped on Netflix. And I think we got through like three or four episodes before we were like, oh yeah, we have to work tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, our VFX editor um, during season two, I think it was, they gave us like baseball caps with the umbrella logo as one of our, you know, the swag gifts. And he had to stop wearing his because he would just get like accosted by people. So there is a deep fan base for this show for sure huge anytime we post anything on social we gain like a thousand followers and i'm like oh man i hope you guys like learning about post-production <laughs> <laughs> so what's really cool is you've been with the show all three seasons now and it was this season that you got the bump up to the big chair you came through as an assistant editor on season one and two and now you are with us as an editor on season three i'm so excited Indeed. about that thank you it was very uh happy news to get in the midst of the COVID pandemic when everything was super shut down. So it was a bright, a bright spot of 2020 to learn that that was happening. So can you tell me a little bit about how that changed your role then? Because I'm super excited that you got to work with all the previs that we do with you guys and how that translates into the edit room. But you had come through, I'm sure, a world of combing through dailies and getting things prepped, but how did that really in practicality change for you from season two to season three and what were the differences like? Yeah, so as an assistant, you get to do some creative duties, but you also have a lot of more technical duties. So you watch all of the footage in the morning and mark it up for the editor so that they kind of know when action is getting called or if it's a blooper or different things and help to organize it however different editors like it organized different ways so it just sort of depends who you're working with and you do you know all the turnovers so at the end when the sound team needs the episode and when the vfx people need certain things or um you know color all those different things you have to send that all out in different ways so there's a lot of just exporting things out of the computer and even some paperwork and different things like that you know most editors have different sort of creative tasks that they like to give to their assistants. So for example, some editors might let their assistants help with doing temp score or some might say, here, can you help me with sound design on this scene? I tend to be more of the person who wants help with sound design on Umbrella because it's such a sound heavy show. And there's so many sound cues along the way that really are essential for telling the story because there's powers and like this season you have like the Kugelblitz and it's just like well, what does that sound like this crazy looking thing and sounds like something and so it's all a process of figuring that out so it's cool as an assistant to get to be involved in some of those creative tasks and one thing that is great about Steve Blackman our showrunner on Umbrella Academy is he came from a background of shows where he saw assistants move up to editor and 
do well in that new role. And so he's a big believer in moving up assistants to editor. And he likes getting to know the assistants when they're assistants and sort of see how they can contribute to the process. So it was nice because I felt like my opinions mattered and I would get, you know, to have a little bit of a say in things or when there was a debate, like, what is this working or is that working? It wasn't like I was just in the corner taking notes, being silent. So through that, I was able to really build a relationship with Steve and with Jeff too, our executive producer, Jeff King, he sits in on a lot of the edit sessions as well. So it was great because I was able to build those relationships from seasons one and two. But um, in season three as an editor, I think the big changes are your role is almost all creative. So I think it's sort of a balance of learning how to give your brain a break sometimes because I feel like our brains aren't designed to just be turned on 100% of the time. So whether that's like taking a break to respond to emails or just, you know, different things like that, that was kind of a bit of a learning process of like, okay, like how do I sort of preserve some of my creative energy? Because it's being asked of me like a lot on a much more regular basis as an editor. And then just sort of, you do a lot more communication with other people as an assistant. Um, a lot of times, a lot of the conversations you're having are with your editor, but as an editor, you could be having conversations with directors, sometimes even the cinematographers, um, a lot of collaboration, the VFX team, obviously on a show with Umbrella happens. So there is a lot more of getting to be involved in different conversations. And even during the shoot, we're really lucky on Umbrella that um, they're able to sometimes run a second unit to go pick up inserts or things that may be missed or um, just sometimes as we're in the editorial process, we'll come up with ideas of, oh, if we had this shot, that would really help us tell the story more. And so um, Jeff and Everett both do, Everett is our VFX mastermind, but he also was a second unit director for a lot of the season. So it was nice to, after hearing the cinematographer's names for so many years, to actually be on Zoom calls with them and be like, oh, if we do this, how, you know, we can make plans together and stuff. And so it was cool to be a little bit more collaborative with the wider world of Umbrella as an editor too. That was quite a way to open because you brought in a lot of the pieces and parts that I'm excited to chat with you about as the editor, because you're right. It is such a collaborative role. And it's one of the things that matters the most to me that people really begin to understand about the editor is you are such a captain of the ship because even Everett said in his interview that the VFX don't necessarily land without sound. So mm -hmm. we have to partner with the sound team. We have to partner with costume. We have to partner. There's all these different things that come into it, but you are also the one that is putting it together and seeing how they're landing to then give that feedback. I wanted to start a little bit with sound. Like, do you put together sound guides to hand off? And where do you even start with that on something that is so VFX heavy? Yeah, so we do a lot of temp sound on Umbrella. I think um, people, you know, when you're working on a show, it's going out to people at UCP, Universal Cable Productions, use our studio. It's going out to people at Netflix. It's going out to the directors. Like there's a lot of people who are watching the rough cuts and um, the sound is just so integral in making it not feel so rough. 
sometimes the difference between like you could take the exact same cut and just not have good sound in there and people will think there's a lot of problems with the cut as a whole and maybe this just doesn't feel complete yet because they aren't up to snuff yet you know so um we're lucky on umbrella like our um sound team formosa they give us sometimes some like power things to work with or and especially now that we're in season three we're able to sort of take things out of the stems of what they did in seasons one and two and reuse some of that um we do a lot in the editorial temp and then in the end um the sound team comes in and they have a meeting with us where we watch the episode and we about like okay like this is like the rough sort of thing that we did and say okay like we need to do something similar with this or like oh this is really just not feeling full enough and they obviously can do a lot more with like mix and cleanup and all this other sort of elements that we can and so usually by the time it gets to the sound team there will be like rougher versions of a lot of the vfx in so they can sort of start to be seeing what it's going to look like in the end and you know because sound is also such a timing specific process you know it has to match what's going on with the picture and then in the end we get to go into the mix and refine and um, make it as good as it can you know best as it can be and so that's always really fun too because you never hear it as good as you'll hear it on the mix stage so that's always one of my favorite things to go listen to how amazing it all finally sounds when it's really come together that way well I hate to ask an obvious question but were you like a fan of Back to the Future? Because, oh my God, all of these different timelines and universes, and I know it always starts with the script, but I also know how highly collaborative your team is. And especially with Netflix being a drop all tenant once, mm -hmm. how in the world did you guys begin to structure that in the edit room of what was playing and did it translate, you know, going through these different universes back in time forward in time alternate realities etc where did you guys as a team come together and then how did you start taking on your part it's a lot to keep track of for sure all of the different timelines i think having been on all of the seasons definitely helps with that because i have a deeper familiarity with a lot of the episodes from just having seen them a lot more times than a average viewer probably would have um Usually the writing team, they're like pretty good about trying to keep notes and things like that about different like, okay, when did this happen? And when did that happen? And for example, season two is really interesting with that. They all end up in Dallas at the beginning of the season, but they all get dropped off at different times. So some of them have been there for years. Some of them have been there for days. Some of them have been there for months. And so the writer's team put together a little list for us of like the dates of when each person got dropped off so that we could sort of be keeping track of where each person kind of was in that journey. This season, I think in a lot of ways was a little bit easier with all the time jumping and that we're now in this alternate version of the present as opposed to like a lot of commission stuff where they were jumping around a little bit more to different time periods or different things. But yeah, it's it's fun. It's sort of you know we definitely sometimes will get into our little like time travel debates and the post house our little water cooler conversations about okay does this make sense or how does this make sense or oh okay now I get it kind of a thing or um it's just fun you know debating time travel I feel like it's like a classic 
conversation. Well, moving into some of your specific episodes, um, I, I have to be, you know, I'm going to prioritize my favorite Marigold. <laughs> this huge backstory or like alternate universe backstory on Pogo. Tell me about what that was like seeing stuff come in. Obviously you're working with temp VFX or you're working with plates and all these different things, but like from, and also our previs, but going through that process, not just, you know, all of the, the temporary stuff that would be there, but then also, um, you get to tell this wonderful, challenging kind of not kind of, but very heart wrenching part of that story in the sparrow world for him as well. Uh, how did you approach that one? And how did you begin working with what I have to imagine was like, not a lot at first. <laughs> Firstly, when I got the script for that one and I read it, it was one of those ones where I was just like, yes. Like, you know, I was like, oh, this is an exciting scene to have in one of my episodes. Um, and so, but what was, what was crazy about it was, as we already discussed, they were shooting during COVID. And um, Canada, where they shoot, had, at the time when they started shooting, had like pretty strict quarantine rules where um, the actors or whoever, crew, anybody who was coming into Canada to work on the show had to quarantine in a hotel for 14 days. And you literally, what I was told was like, you couldn't leave your hotel room. Like you just lived in a room. They brought like everything you needed um, and you just had to do that. And so it had it made some scheduling challenges for the people up there because it wasn't like, oh, we need the actor for a day. Let's just fly him up and we'll fly him right back. It was like, okay, they're here for two weeks before we can even have them bond to a set. Um, and so it affected that opening scene, the dojo scene in episode six, because um, the, the actor who played Marcus um, and the actors who played um, Jamie and Alfonso they all don't make it past episode three in the story, right? So um, they didn't want to have to like back and have to do a whole quarantine process and the whole sort of thing. I think some of them are Canadian, but um, it was just like a much bigger process. So with scheduling, they decided to actually shoot that scene like at the beginning. It was in the early weeks of shooting. Um, so they shot it, I think like my first or second week on the job when they were most episodes, episodes three and four. So it was like, here's this scene for episode six. You'll get the rest of episode six later. And that turned into even a crazier thing because episode six is also the one where it takes place somewhat in Hotel Obsidian, but also in Hotel Oblivion. And because that's the same giant set, Obsidian and Oblivion, they couldn't change, they could only change the set over one time, a huge endeavor to change it. So all of the oblivion scenes in episode six, they couldn't shoot till they were shooting episode 10 when the hotel was totally changed over. So I literally got from like my first or second week on the job until the second to last day of shooting. There were still materials for episode six coming in. So it was really nice. Jeff King, our producing director, we were both like, oh, it's so nice to just actually watch this episode because it's just been months and months of months of only having bits and pieces of it and not being able to really see how it was playing as a whole. But um, so the, the dojo scene came in pretty early in, the pro in 
my time on the show and everybody had done so much work before they even shot, which made a huge difference. So obviously you guys were involved in the previs process, um, which they did in order to figure out like where they wanted to put the camera and all those things, especially because they were shooting those super slow motion shots with the phantom camera. Those take mm -hmm. time to get and set up and all of that sort of thing. And so, you know, you really have to maximize what you're able to get in a day. They also had storyboards that they worked with, which were great. So it was awesome because when it started, I came in and I already had all these material. I was able to sort of talk to Jeff and understand like what his vision for the scene was before even like got the footage. And so, you know, we put all of that together. Um, and the other thing was Pogo, he's done by a Weta over in New Zealand, but doing Pogo shots is a long process as well. Like they take a lot of time. They go through a lot of passes to get all of that amazing detail. And um, Ben's tentacles are also, you know, pretty intense the effect sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so they really wanted to get an early start on getting those out to the vendors and getting those shots worked on um, because they knew that those were going to take a while to get them to finals. So I put together the, you know, the cut and everything, polished it up. And my assistant JT did some really great temp sound with it so that we would have, you know, there are no real tentacles. So we would have cues for, oh, the tentacles are tightening here. Like that was something we could hear it even if we can't see it. And we actually used the previs that you guys put together and we would put little picture in picture in the corner of the previs to help people know like this is sort of where the shot is go. Like the like, you know, Jamie is going and nothing's happening. And but the little previs is like there's the spit flying. So it's like, okay, this is the shot where we'll see the spit flying at the camera. This is the shot where the Nickel's going to break the beam or whatever sort of thing. And so that helped everybody to sort of know, okay, this is what's happening within each shot. Definitely, we were worried about it like budgetarily because it was a very expensive scene. So we also came up as a team with some like creative ways that we could save a little money here and there because that episode, as you know, later in the episode has a lot of big VFX scenes with Victor and Harlan and the whole attempts that they're making at the power exchange. So we didn't want to put all the money into the opening and then feel like we were having to cut corners later on. So we wanted to try to balance that out. Also worked with the rest of the VFX team to sort of condense it a little bit and feel like, how can we tell that story um, and a really cool story, but still have this like not take away from what we want to do with the rest of the episode. And then it was really cool when we started to get like the early versions of the VFX in, because that was another thing with that one is it's really hard to tempt the tentacles. So Tom Demowry and Joe Suzuki, you know, are our amazing VFX editorial team and they are great at temps, but there's some like 3D objects um they they could do it but it would take away from their ability to do a lot of the other jobs that they have because it's very time consuming so um so it was really exciting when we started getting early versions of the tentacles and it's always awesome when we start getting the early versions of pogo especially because pogo had a new look this year so it was really fun to see him in his dojo outfit and in his biker clothes and things like that and and yeah, I think it was a really important scene in terms of this story because the sparrows aren't the most sympathetic characters 
for a lot of the early episodes. And um, we've kind of really seen more the side of Hargreaves that's like, he seems a lot gentler. He's kind of having this bonding relationship a bit with Klaus a little, you know, like he doesn't seem like the Hargreaves that we remember from seasons one and two at all. And so that's really the scene where you see like, oh no, he's still that Hargreaves. He was that Hargreaves. Like they just handled this in a way that was different from how the Umbrella Academy chose to handle it with, you know, the pills and the different things. And and so that's like a real turning point, I think, where you are able to build some sympathy for the Sparrow characters where you see like, okay, they weren't really treated that well as children either. Like it was very similar sort of to what the umbrellas experienced in their training and that sort of thing. And it helps to build that connection. Did you guys at all have like, I'm team umbrella, I'm team sparrows? Probably not, right? <laughs> I think we're all team umbrella. <laughs> we, we did like discussing like, who's your favorite sparrow? You know, like, I feel like that's always a question. Yeah, it's the same with the umbrellas. It's like, I always like asking people when they tell me they're a fan of the show, who their favorite Umbrella Academy character is. I loved Faye. Um, that actress, Brittany, she did such a good job expressing things without the use of her eyes, which I think is got to be, I'm not an actress at all, but I'm like, that has to be hard to have very key body part and be like, can't use that one, you know, so. Yeah. I think she was also my favorite. And I think um, in large part, I, I mean, and it's another question that I want to ask about, like, if there's ever any room for improv, but like, she looked like she was having so much fun with that character, almost like, you know, someone with any kind of limitation where they're, they're just heightened in their other strengths. Mm-hmm. And she just really seemed to play to that. Mm-hmm. And also that's a pretty cool superpower although it looked painful, like I would think it was painful, <laughs> but she just seemed like, whatever, that's a thing that I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah Is the room funny. for like, I mean, they all seem like very funny, talented, gifted individuals and like, it's a fun set. Do you ever have any of that kind of seep in and there's a little bit of like riffing or playing around and improving? Yeah, they definitely do like to improv um, a little bit here and there. It's not like excessive, like every single scene, we're getting a lot of improv, but um, yeah, there there is improv and sometimes those lines do make the final cut. Um, a lot of times I feel like the improv is not, it doesn't end up in the final thing, but <laughs> every now and then there's a real gem. I think that... There was like a part where Ben punches Klaus and it's the first time he's able to have like a physical interaction with the real world because he's dead. And Robert, the actor who plays Klaus says, you just Patrick Swayze'd me or something like that. Sight! That was a new line. Yeah, that was just a Robert coming up with something line. So awesome. Mm -hmm. About how long do you get for an editor's cut? This season was a little bit odd because like I described, the schedule was a little bit different. So um, the other thing that happened because of COVID was 
at the beginning of shooting, they weren't allowed to shoot anything outside for a while because there was no way of controlling the environments of people, you know, on the street who were trying to gather to watch or different things like that. And they were trying to minimize how many people were in a room at any one time. So they actually went and shot a bunch of like two person scenes across multiple of the first episodes right towards the beginning. Um, and then kind of tried to save like the bigger group scenes and things like that for certain parts and then all the outdoor scenes until COVID numbers had gone down a little bit. So it was sort of interesting because for example, with episode three, I got everything except the outside scenes. And that happened, I think also with episodes one and two and I'm trying to, at some point they were able to start kind of going outside and doing both scenes, you know, how they normally would. But for a while, a few of our episodes would just have black little slugs that said, seen this, and here's a short description of what happens in this scene and it will come eventually. But like episode six, we were missing so many pieces for so long. And also Jeff was so busy on set because he has so many roles to play when they're up in Toronto that like he and I really started working on that together once shooting was done and he was able to come back and just fully focus on editorial and things like that sort of a hard question to answer this season it was very variable (laughs) yeah I think that's been kind of common across shows during COVID Mm -hmm. um but I, I'm also very interested in what kind of notes you were getting and how that then shapes things because again, um, I think Netflix is one of the few platforms that releases an entire season together anymore. Right. You know, that was far more common early streaming days and getting people to watch, but Netflix has continued with that. And so you actually do have the ability, or you tell me, do you have the ability as those notes are coming in to still shift or switch or pull and collaborate, you know, as as you're realizing if something does or does not work, like how do those notes start coming in and help you take shape of it? So we still try to work in order with Netflix just because, um, and UCP, because I think it's difficult to just be like, here's episode six and later we'll send you episode four and whatever. And, you know, they're keeping track of a bunch of TV shows. It's not like Umbrella Academy is their only job. So trying to follow the story and the through lines, if we're sending things out of order, is just kind of asking for too much. Um, So we, even though we were, you know, spending a lot more time in editorial and for different varying reasons, um, we would still send things in order to them and get the notes back in order. And how, how does it start? So it's, um, you know, an editor's cut, but then you start working with your director and then do things change in collaboration with the cinematographer or how does it kind of mold and shift from, from the early beginnings? The editor always gets the first cut. So you get your days to do your cut where you can do whatever you want with it. And then just, um, you know, present your best product to the director. And then the director in TV gets a certain number of days where they get to work on it. It's actually, it's a lot shorter than features. So um, so we usually work for a few days with the director. And then once we send that off, it's in like Steve and also Jeff's hands to sort of as producers to give the notes from there. And, um, and so then a lot of times with Steve, we'll 
it'll be like a little bit more flexible with the schedule because he'll be working on a lot of different episodes at once. And so that's where um, we might kind of jump around a little bit and be like, today we're going to work on three, but tomorrow he's going to work on six or whatever sort of thing. And um, so it, I think the main thing that we really like heard a lot with notes was really trying to find the right pace and sort of make it like quick and snappy and sort of cutting out all of the I think there's a lot of times where there's things that sound really really cool on the page and sometimes even the footage is really cool but then you're like it's just feeling a little bit slow or it's like taking away from some of the intensity or some of the pressure and so we do a lot of just kind of figuring out how to simplify things or how to shorten things to make sure that that level of intensity always there. Um, like for example, one of my episodes was episode three. And so episode three has got that big climax where the sparrows come to the hotel and they're having the standoff with the umbrellas. And then at the end, Harlan shows up and blows all the th everybody up kind of, and you know, this whole big moment. And when I read that on the page, I was like, oh, this is going to be really cool. This also is probably going to be one of the harder scenes that we have all season because it was a lot of things happening simultaneously. So it's like, you know, you have the Mahjong players who are freaking out and running away and you, you have Diego at Stan, we're safe and you have Christopher the Cube, you know, psionic attacking everybody and you have Harlan is coming in from the elevator and there actually were more pieces. Once we actually saw it all together, we were like, oh, it feels too slow like it doesn't feel threatening anymore because we're trying to jump around to too many places and show too many things and so that became like okay how do we make sure that we really keep up the like intensity of this scene and it in the end like there was a part where Chet the hotel manager like ran out with a fire extinguisher and is trying to like put out the fire and stuff and we were like we don't need that. We don't need this. You know, what all can we chop out to just make it feel like it's just chaos and it's like our our heroes are in danger. And then all of a sudden this person comes out and then it's like, what just happened? And that was how we wanted people to feel. The end of that sequence was just like, whoa, that was like a lot, you know? I would say like if there was one overarching note that happened across all the episodes, it was that sort of idea of like, keep it moving, keep it intense you know, make sure that this threat that is the Kugel Blitz feels like it's elevating across all of the episodes and that, you know, that sort of thing. I do have so many questions about the Kugel Blitz, but also everybody having all of their different powers, you still had so many instances with the Kugel Blitz that you had to work with in form. Like you said, your creative brain is constantly on how are you working with that? Not just being a looming threat and not just being VFX temps that you're working with, but like, are you thinking about how this lands on the audience and, and what to tweak or switch or move to convey that constant looming threat and how it plays into each of these characters? Yeah, that was actually a big thing that happened in editorial this season because in the scripts, the Blitz didn't show up quite as many times as we ended up deciding it needed to show up. And so what happened when we were maybe kind of working through episode like five or six with Steve was he was like, okay, now I've watched, you know, a good chunk of the season all in a row. I think we're starting to lose the thread of what's going on with the Kugelblitz and this idea that it's always 
it's growing, it's starting to be able to shoot further out, take out things that are further away. It's causing more destruction. It's causing more disappearances, those sorts of things. And so one of the assistants made a list of like, every time there was a Kugelblitz here, it happens in this episode here and it happens that episode there. And then we said, okay, so like, where do we feel like we're kind of just, it's kind of not part of the story for too long and different things like that. We ended up going back in and looking for places where we could add more Kugelblitz and showing more of what it was and how it was growing and that sort of thing. Um, so like, for example, episode six, we added a wave where the Kugelblitz comes out and then we see Victor's pulling into the drive and it's like destroy city in the background and things are a lot more apocalyptic looking in the back there because originally they wanted to do a whole scene where Victor was driving to the drive-in and he was seeing all of these destruction just around him on his way there but it just for time and other reasons it just it had to go um, so we looked for like a lot of creative ways for like, where could we insert these little moments throughout the season where it's not going to distract you from, or it's not going to feel like, oh, we just snuck that in there, you know, feel like it can tie into the story to really just try to show like this is getting worse and really make sure that theme was not getting lost in the shuffle. So that was like one of those reverse post-engineering sort of moments to make sure that that Kugelblitz threat was really there as much as it needed to be so yeah well in these last few minutes I'm going to ask you what your favorite sequence was this this season I mean if you're super passionate about something from season one or two yay but this season <laughs> three has been just packed epically packed as as Everett likes to say we go bigger and harder and better. <laughs> and I was like, you put it all in there this season to her. What was that for you? I really loved um, episode nine. My cold open in that episode is the one where Luther is on the moon. And I think what I really loved about that as an editor was that Originally in the script, the way that story was told was there were more moments of Luther recording his messages to send back to Hargreaves where he was explaining what was going on in his head. The actor Tom did great giving this like, there are parts where he gave like very depressing monologues and stuff like that about like how alone he felt and all of these sorts of things. And, um, and when we went and watched it, we went, oh, like, this could be one of those kind of rare opportunities where we could tell this story without words, which is such a unique art to filmmaking. And so we went back and we did a new cut of it where we had the little dialogue at the beginning where he was, you know, good morning, dad, it's this day and da 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 da. Um, but then we took out all of the rest of the dialogue and all the rest of the recordings and we just were like, let's just tell it where we just see that he's getting scruffier, his expressions are changing, kind of turning into a mess, he's eating through all his rations. We were like, all of these images are so powerful on their own, they don't need anything to accompany them, you know, and so when we watched it that way, we love this so much more, it just felt 
really felt the impact of like everything he was going through. And I also, I love the, the Cure song and stuff like that. And so it was a really, that one was just a lot of fun, but also just a really cool opportunity editorially to tell a story that way, which we don't always get to do, so. This was so much fun, Amy. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with us. I can't even imagine how the fans are going to blow up on this one. So I'm really excited to put this together and get this out there. Uh, and we will absolutely uh, look forward to having you back and Thank really appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you. It was really great to talk to you. Thanks for uh, everything that you're doing to shine a light on all the different parts of our process that don't always get so much attention. It's great. You guys deserve it. What a season, what a project. Well done. Thank you, Amy. We'll see you next time. All right.